Amen. You guys can go ahead and take a seat. Thanks for reading, Christine. Uh, we're having you stand and sit so much today so you can uh, work off some of those Thanksgiving calories. Uh, so praise be to God. Uh, well, it's officially Christmas season, so you can decorate your houses with your tree, your lights, your stockings, whatever it is that you do. But if you did it before Thanksgiving, you probably need to repent of some sin. <laughs> it's in Opinions chapter 2. Praise God that he continues to forgive and he's got grace abounding ever and ever more. Uh, I got some head shakers. That's okay. Uh, well, friends, uh, yeah, today begins a season of Advent. If you look at church history, Advent's been something that the church has done for centuries. Uh, their whole hope uh, with looking at Advent was that it would help them reflect on, on essentially what God had done. Now, if you read the Old Testament, God continues to give this promise time and time again that he would uh, use his people to bring about a blessing so that they would be a blessing to the rest of the nations. And uh, this whole promise is pointed towards Jesus. Now, on, on this side of history, we have the blessing to look back and see that God fulfilled his promise. He brought Jesus as an infant, and we continue to just worship him and see that he's an amazing God who did what he said he was going to do. But for us, we're still in this almost season of waiting as well. We know that Jesus came, but at the same time, we're waiting for his arrival, his second coming. Now, the word Advent simply means arrival or coming. So the season of Advent for us, too, is a point of, of also waiting alongside uh, of those, the remnant who, who begged for God to continue to bring his promise forward so that he would bring his promised Messiah. And so we, too, are eagerly waiting Jesus's return. So in the spirit of Advent, we're going to take four weeks where we're going to walk through a couple of different themes. Hope is today. Uh, love, peace, joy are all the other ones that we're going to walk through. And so uh, as we consider today what hope really means, I figured, hey, what's a good way to kind of think about hope? And uh, Julie kind of brought it up and stole my sermon intro a little bit. But big weekend for Husker football, was it not? We beat Iowa. Praise God. Um, that was a first in a long time. And we hired a new football coach, Matt Rule. And some of you guys are like, oh, football, Nebraska Cornhuskers, I hate to do sports. Well, it works for the illustration, so tag along for a little bit. Um, so uh, as we kind of consider, hey, okay, the new football coach, for those of you who are like Husker fans, you're thinking, yeah, I'm excited. This is who I wanted it to be. This is, I'm excited for what's going to come and his background and everything with that. And then some of you are like, oh, dang it. I don't think he's going to be great. I don't know if he's our guy. And the rest of you are kind of sitting around like, I don't really care. Uh, but uh, if you're participating in all uh, everything Husker football, you really, you're hoping that it's going to turn out well. You're hoping that he's going to recruit. He's going to develop. He's going to change the culture. It's going to be a place where just maybe we'll make a bowl game again. So as we consider putting our hope in the new coach, if he fails, our hope is in complete vain. If he succeeds, eventually he's going to move on. He's going to retire, he'll pass away, he'll walk away maybe, he might have a bad year again, and then we end up disappointed. But unlike the hope that we put behind a coach, as Julie was saying, we can put our hope in other things in life, not just a football coach. Sometimes we put our hope in our kids. Sometimes we put it in our spouses, parents, friends, health, finances, the government. 
We could put our hope in a, in a million things that are a part of this place and a part of this world. But the reality is eventually it will let you down. It will crumble. It will disappoint you because it's not perfect. It doesn't satisfy. And it's not what you need most in your life. You cannot be absolutely certain that whatever your hope is in will give you the great joy that you're craving, the salvation that you need, the absolute peace that you are are just begging for. The good news is, though, we can put our hope in someone that is absolutely certain and someone who will not disappoint us. And only one person can do that, and that's God himself. Our hope in God is something that's far greater, far greater than anything that we could imagine or even make on this earth. So the big idea for today's uh, morning message that we're going to see out of the scriptures today is that we can have a confident hope that does not disappoint. We can have a confident hope that doesn't disappoint. We're going to see that in three movements. So first, we're going to see our hope in the glory. Second, we'll see our hope in suffering. And finally, we'll see our hope in love. But before we dive into Romans chapter 5, I want to give us a little bit of context because we've been in Matthew for like the last year and we still have like another year of Matthew left. So buckle up, I warned you. Um, But as we step into Advent, Romans chapter 5, the Apostle Paul wrote this letter to this church in Rome. So the Jews who were there were cast out. They were exiled. About five years later, they were welcomed back in. And as they come back to the church, they start to see there's a bunch of division. There's persecution. There's an entire city that hates them. And as they're continuing to uh, build one another up or move towards that in the local church, there's uh, just a great division that's between them all. And so Paul writes this letter with the hope that this would bring the church back to unity. It would teach them how to walk with one another and that they would live that out. So as we look at Romans chapter 5, there's four chapters before this that we kind of see and unpack. And what Paul's really doing in the first couple of chapters is he's reminding them of who they were before Jesus, that they were dead in their sin and that Jesus is the one who saved them, that they could put their trust and their faith in him. And as he moves through chapter 4, he builds this argument of this theme called justification. And what justification simply means is that that you're made right with God. You are justified. You're made right with God as you put your faith in Jesus, no longer guilty of your sin. So they're forgiven of that. And then chapter five, he makes a switch where he starts talking a little bit more about, hey, here's how to live out your faith maybe in this way. That brings us to verse one in in chapter five. And so I'll read verses one and two quickly for us. And it says, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We have also obtained access through him by faith into his grace in which we stand. And we boast in the hope of the glory of God. So the first thing that we see out of these couple verses are that we have hope in the glory of God. So Paul makes his big argument reminding them of the faith in Christ that they have. And then as he's talking about this justification, being made right with God, he says, you get three blessings essentially out of this justification. You get three things that come from this. The first one he talks about is peace with God. Now there's two different types of peace when you consider it. There's like internal peace, like your soul and your spirit is quieted. You feel like you're at peace. And then there's relational peace where there's distance maybe between you and someone else. And so Paul maybe writes in different pieces of the scriptures and different letters. He talks about that internal peace that you might have. But here he's talking about relational peace. And he's specifically talking about peace with God. So why would we need peace with God? Why is this something that we actually receive from him and from our justification? 
Well, pre-Jesus, before you knew Christ, before you were in a relationship with Jesus, there's all this chaos that's between you and him. There's a barrier between the two of you, right? As, As you consider and you start thinking, well, when we're not in Christ, we are our own authority. We're the ones who make the decisions. We're the ones who declare right and wrong. We say, this is good. This is bad. This is how I'm going to live my life. You're claiming essentially kingship over your own life. Now, if you look at God and you look at who he actually is, king of the universe, he's created all things. He's the one that spoke it all into existence. He's the one who made each and every single one of us and why we have life here today. And yet it seems like the two are at odds. Us and God were enemies, as verse uh, 10 tells us in chapter 5. It calls us enemies of God. If we're trying to claim authority over something that he actually has authority over, it's almost like we're at war with him. And so as we consider what it means to have peace with God, it's a reality that our faith in Jesus no longer has us at odds with God, but it's moving us towards a point to where we're actually in a a peaceful relationship with him and with one another because of our faith in Jesus. So then he moves on from peace with God being the first blessing from our justification to the second blessing, which is our access to him. So if you go back to the beginning of the scriptures, you read Genesis 1. Oh man, God made all things good. Genesis 2, you get a cool insight of how God created Adam and Eve. And then chapter 3, you start to read, oh, wow, chaos kind of breaks out because Adam and Eve fall into sin. And then there's towards the end of the chapter where God casts them out of the garden. He not only casts them out of the garden, which is where his presence is and where he is, but he places a cherubim there. And it's got like a flaming sword between you and God. You kind of start thinking about that and you go, whoa, okay. Yeah, that's a big barrier between the two of us. And you start to see, but because of what Jesus has done, there's no longer a barrier between me and God. There's no longer a barrier between you and God because of what Christ has done. If you've trusted in Jesus, you have access to him. You you can have this relational peace with him where you can go to him. You can have prayer with him. You can communicate with him. He's given us his scripture so we can hear from him so that we can continue to be in this great relationship with him. And I like to think that a new creation, because of the peace with God and access with God that I have, that one day that cherubim is going to let me play with that flaming sword and I'm going to do cool tricks with it. And it's going to be a blast. And then I'll do, I don't know, like Jedi moves or something. Right, Ricky? Nah? Okay. (laughs) Uh, So uh, not only do we have access and peace with God, but he moves on. And here's where we kind of see this theme of hope starting to build that Paul has. And we have a hope in the glory of God. Now, if we start to think, okay, what is, what is hope then? Why do we talk about this word so much in the church? I feel like I said it a million times in the first gathering when I was talking about it and not in terms, I was thinking about it more of the way that we communicate rather than uh, as we actually talk about in the scriptures. And uh, as we kind of say the word hope, usually what we mean is wishful thinking, something that's not absolutely certain, something where we maybe are just kind of dreaming it might happen right? I hope I get a brownie later today. I hope that I'm going to be able to make it home. As I was driving home from Texas this week, you know, there's all the bridges that they're building in the big cities. And I'm like, I hope that doesn't fall on me when I drive under it. And it's something that, you know, we're dreaming about, kind of wishful thinking of, but not certain of. But the word hope in the scriptures 
It, it actually means something that is certain. It is a conviction. It is true. It is something that we can actually look to with confidence when we read the word hope. A way to look at it as we consider this is just really seeing, man, it's, it's not this wishful thinking, dreaming, kind of mysterious thing that we look to, but the hope that we see in the scriptures is reality. It's something that is going to be true. It is certain. It is foundational for us. Then we think of, okay, hope in the glory of God. So what is glory? feels like a weird word that we kind of toss around in Christian circles, but the word glory, it simply means weight. It means heavy. So as we come to understand, okay, God's glory, God's weightiness, his heaviness, as you consider that, it's, it's something that's not light or insignificant or something that's just tossed off to the side. But God's magnificent. He's big. He's huge. He, he's just something that we can't even fathom. He's significant. And, and as we really try to think of the glory of God, it should put a weight on us to see how big he actually is. But I think sometimes we get too familiar with it. I think sometimes we kind of start thinking in our mind with this unbelief of who God is. Or we start thinking, yeah, he's just far off in the distance and he's not really that significant in our life. Start thinking, "Mm, maybe that's not actually who he is. And we forget the, the monumentous grace that's poured out on us, the peace that we have with him. We forget the access that we're able to commune with him and have conversations and pray and see that he's in our life, that he's continuing to give us his promises. And we just start kind of seeing, oh, it's just distant. It's far off. It's not big. It's, it's not real. And yet God continues to point us towards him in the scriptures to see that he is big. He is vast. We should not just lose familiarity with him, but our familiarity should continue to illuminate how big he actually is. And what that also means as we start to consider, okay, our hope and how significant he is and how certain we can be in someone who is that big and magnificent. Well, that means that our hope is not in ourselves. And Julie was kind of talking about too, like we often put our hope in, in who we are. We hope in, in how well we can do things. We try to pride ourselves up and say, man, I'm going to move forward. I'm going to be able to do it all. I can get through everything on my own. Or we put our hope in other people or other things and we start seeing, man, that, that's not as glorious as I thought it was. It's not actually moving me forward in love or peace or joy, whatever sort of way that I'm hoping that that thing actually does. We start to desire our our own instant gratification or our own uh, reward and pride and our own glory. And so we start to put off God's glory. We say, we're more significant. We're more weighty. We're grand, more grand than he is. But our hope is not in us because we're not as big as God is. We can't speak things into existence. I wish we could. That'd be a really cool magic trick. I'd be like, bam, plate of brownies. Woo, summertime. And it would all happen. But I'm not God. I'm not as grand as he is. I don't have the weight behind myself that God does. And so as we consider what's it mean to hope in the glory of God, it's for us to have certainty in the reality of how big he is. It's for us to have absolute confidence in the fact that he is who he says he is, and he's continued to do that over time. 
So the hope and the glory of God not only kind of kicks off these first couple of verses, but he moves it forward to help us see that we could also have hope in the suffering. So I'll read verse uh, 3 and 4 again for us. And not only that, but we also boast in our afflictions because we know that affliction produces endurance. Endurance produces proven character and proven character produces hope. So Paul kind of starts this chain reaction of things. It feels like, okay, one does the other, then the other, then the other. And so he goes, afflictions to endurance, endurance to character, character to hope. We read this at face value. Kind of sounds like a tough pill to swallow. Like, mm, boasting in our affliction. Maybe your translation says rejoicing in suffering. Okay, that sounds a little weird. I don't... I'm not like, oh, yes, that terrible thing happened. Yeah, I'm excited about it. Like, that, that doesn't stir me up in that sort of way. And so what is he really communicating here? Now, Paul was writing to people who were persecuted. He's writing to a church who was at odds, who had no unity, who had people who hated them all around them. And so as he's talking about their afflictions and their suffering, he's really more so talking about persevering in the middle of persecution. But that doesn't mean it doesn't help us understand how we walk through our own suffering or our own afflictions today. So Paul isn't saying, hey, we rejoice because suffering exists. He's also not saying that you just put suffering away to the side and you just walk away from it. and You go, nope, it's nothing. But in our afflictions, in our suffering, something does happen to us as Christians. Something does happen on the inside of what God's doing in the middle of it. And it's kind of odd to say, honestly, as I was writing this, it's odd to say that the scriptures point out that afflictions have beneficial results for us. That's just weird to kind of communicate and really think about. But suffering helps us grow in endurance. It's what he's pointing towards. So quick illustration, uh, a couple of weeks ago, about a month ago, my daughter Eden, she would have been eight months at the time, she had a respiratory virus. So not RSV, just like a virus. So she was boogery all over the place, coughing, uh, didn't sleep great. Uh, She actually was really fussy the entire week. And prior to this, Eden's been like an amazing sleeper. Never had issues from the moment she was born. She would sleep phenomenally. And so as she got sick, We would lay her down for a nap or we'd lay her down for bed in the evening and she would just scream her face off because she couldn't breathe because she was congested because she's lying flat. So we're like, okay, how do we do this? We'd pick her up and boom, she'd stop crying. And so we just kind of took turns a couple of nights and throughout the hours and we said, all right, I guess we're going to just like hold her while she sleeps and we'll just kind of hope that we can get through the evening. And it was hard. It was really difficult because I'm, I'm like sitting there and I'm like trying to rock her and she's screaming in my ear and then I start crying because she's crying and it just wasn't really fun. And the, as the week went on though, it started to get to a point to where she was still fussy, still really sick, still not doing well. And yet it became easier for us to get through. We started to kind of build up like this endurance, this strength to kind of say like, okay, cool, like I can handle this. And she would scream and I wouldn't cry. And it was like, that's a win. And you're kind of wrestling with it all. And it was a good thing. And Mariah and I kind of joked that God gave us a baby that sleeps really well because we were like a complete wreck. And it shook us, you know, when she wasn't sleeping good. Now, some of you might be hearing that and you're kind of like, oh, Like, you think that's rough? Well, imagine what, uh, like, I had to walk through. And I'm like, that's my point. You see, because you went through something more difficult with your kid, you have thicker skin. 
Now, it's kind of like a light joke, you know, like I'm 29 years old. I honestly haven't been through a lot of like hard suffering seasons in my life. And if I have, they were prior to Jesus. And so now as I have been a follower of Jesus and been walking with Christ, as I'm kind of considering and thinking, how do we hope in suffering? And what does that look like as it builds endurance, as it moves us forward and we're processing kind of all those things? And you're thinking, man, what it points us towards is Jesus and greater endurance and trusting in who he is and seeing that he's still good. Because our endurance doesn't just sit there as like endurance. Like it, it, it's actually a spiritual muscle almost that helps us move forward and closer to Jesus. Because when we're walking in the middle of suffering, where does your eyes go? What are you hoping in? When, when all else breaks down in life, marriage is crumbling. Who do you hope in? When you're sick to the point to where you're in the hospital for weeks, uncertain, you have no diagnosis, doctors have no clue what to do, who do you look to? When you have family members who it feels like everything's in shambles and you're wrestling and you're caring for them and yet at the same time you have no idea how to walk beside them and they feel like everybody's walking away from them, where does your hope go? Suffering makes us actually see clearly what we really hope in. I think a lot of us maybe even saw that during like the pandemic when everything kind of shut down. It realized all the idols in our life started to brighten up what we were actually putting all of our desires on. And so as we look to what the scriptures are pointing us towards is that suffering actually helps us see what's really important in life. And suffering moves us closer to endure through the tough seasons because it helps us understand the glory of God because it helps us see how much weightier he is than us. And it helps us long even more for his second coming. Because he came the first time, we could be certain that he's going to come back a second time. And so this endurance then continues to build. And then Paul says it moves us into greater character. And so as you're kind of considering, okay, greater character. You know, when I was in high school at our weights class, we had to sign out with a piece of paper. And we had to give them like, hey, what is character? And we would say, you know, I think the definition was something like character is who you are when nobody's watching kind of a thing. And, but as I was kind of thinking of this, I was like, okay, what is, what is Paul really communicating? Well, one commentator drew the picture that character is almost more like testedness. So he drew the illustration of the sports team, and I'm using a sports team again, so if you hate sports, I'm sorry, but the illustration works. Uh, and so as you're wrestling with it and you're thinking, okay, say there's a team of like freshmen and sophomores. They're playing against a bunch of other teams and their conference kind of stinks and they don't play anybody. So they run the table and they win all their games and they get to the point to where at the championship game, they walk into the stadium, they see the places packed full of people and they're about to play a team that's about uh, 10 times stronger, faster, better than they are. They're shaking in their boots probably. They're, they haven't been tested all season long and here's the moment where they're going to probably get their butts whooped. Then you think of the opposite team, and you think, oh, that's a bunch of juniors, that's a bunch of seniors, they've been through this, they've gone through a couple of seasons, they've wrestled, they've played a hard schedule, they've been tested a time or two, and it comes to the point to where they walk into the stadium and they're like, we've been here before, we know what we're doing. They're not shaken, 
They have great confidence in who they are or what they're doing in that situation. And so as Paul's kind of unpacking what endurance does, you start to see that that endurance then produces this testedness. So as we're walking and thinking about afflictions or suffering in our life, the endurance that we've kind of walked through as you've been through different things in life, you start to go, man, I can get through this. And not only I can get through this, but you start to see, man, God was present back then and he's present here today again now. And you start to see, man, God's continuing to build up like this spiritual muscle to where we could have certain hope in him. We can have absolute clarity in who the God of the universe is. And that character then produces even greater hope in God because it's confidence. It's a reality that's right before you that you start to see, man, God is still good. He's still with his people in their afflictions. He's still with his people in their suffering. He continues to keep his promises. Julie pointed us towards him. 3,000 promises in the scriptures that we can see that God comes through time and time again. And as I'm wrestling and thinking about my own life and different trials that I've kind of walked through or different seasons and things, I'm thinking, yeah, I can look back and actually go, God's shown up there. He's shown up there. He's shown up there. He's shown up there. One of the best ways that you can have certainty and confidence in someone or something is you look at its past. You start to see the past record. So, you know, I'm going back to the football coach thing and you start thinking, okay, you know, as you're thinking Nebraska football, you're like, I want to see somebody come in who's got a proven record, who's done this before. Who, not just somebody who they're like, hey, we think this guy might be good at it. And you start to look, and I'm like, man, yeah, I want somebody who's got a track record of winning kind of a thing, so that way we could win. And you start thinking, okay, if that's true with something like as small as like a football coach, how much more is it when we think of the God of the universe that we're putting our certain hope in? We start seeing, man, he's got a great track record, not just in my life, but throughout all of history as I read scripture. Prayer answered, continued to provide the Messiah over and over again, forgives of sin. Time and time again, he shows up over and over saying, I am who I said I was. And as you think of the Israelites, in their life, we can see them as a reality that the, the remnant of Israelites who waited for God to provide the Messiah to show up, right? They, trial after trial, exile, war, affliction, persecution, poverty, slavery, all of this stuff happened in, the, in their lives, in their genealogies, in their family history. And they were able to look forward to the Messiah that was coming. And so we too, in the middle of our suffering middle of your pain, middle of whatever circumstances that you might be walking through, we could look at God's track record. He may not change the circumstance. He may not make things better for you in that moment. You may not understand it ever for the rest of your life of why he's doing something. But you can look to the promises of scripture and see that God is who he said he is. He will return. Jesus is coming back again. He will restore all things. You do have access to the God of the universe. You have a real promise to cling to that Jesus loves you and cares for you and is there with you and will never leave you, will never walk away from you. It is not temporary, but it is eternal hope that we look forward to. So this hope in the suffering then points us forward to the hope and love that we keep reading about. And so verse 5 reads that the hope will not disappoint us because God's love has been poured out in our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. So the third point we see in the scriptures is the hope and love. 
So verse 5 encourages us to reflect, to look back on what Jesus has done, because it's not something that is just there and present in our minds, but the hope and the love of who God is, is something that we should sit with. We, we should dwell in the reality that God loves us, because this passage isn't talking about our love for him, but his love for us and what he's done. It doesn't disappoint. It isn't, it is unfading. And we can be certain of God's love for us because of what Paul continues to do. His love was poured out through, our, uh, through the Holy Spirit that he's given to us. And as you start thinking, okay, God loves us so we can have complete hope in him. He's given us his promised Holy Spirit. But how much more does the confidence grow when we start to realize who we were and yet he still pursued us? Paul goes on kind of a little rant right after this section, verses 6 through 10, of different things of, of who we really are and how much, how, how he helps us see how much God actually loves us. Because verse 6, who, who are we before Jesus? We're helpless and ungodly. Verse 8, we're sinners. Verse 9, we're due the wrath of God. Verse 10, we are enemies of God. These aren't just words to walk by and kind of go, yeah, I I don't know about you, but if someone's helpless, ungodly, sinful, do the wrath of God, enemies of God, I'm not like, yeah, I'm going to relentlessly pursue them. Yet God says, I will. And that's how we can start to see that we could be completely certain in his love for us, that we could hope in the love that God has for us, who he would loved people who didn't deserve it, who were far from him, who were in need, who were his enemies, deserved death, walked away, rejected him, and claimed authority over themselves, and yet he still came. Our hope is not in someone who says, hey, just get your life right, and then I'll save you. Our hope isn't in someone who says, hey, get through your afflictions, get through your suffering, and then I'll come for you. It's not in a God who says, give me all of your possessions, all of your money, and then we could have peace between each other. He doesn't say, make sure you do the Ten Commandments absolutely perfectly, and then you could have some access to like a relationship with me. But our hope is in a God who clung to his promises, that continued to be the one to pursue people who broke the covenant that were in a relationship with him. I'm, I've been a dad for nine months, and I'm walking around our house, and Eden's crawling, and she's climbing on things, and she's moving a lot, and it feels like every time I turn around and I look back, she's gone, and she's somewhere else, and I'm like putting the little safety plug-ins into the little holes, got a baby gate up, trying to make sure she doesn't bonk her head on everything, and I'm sitting here thinking... The God of the universe decided to become an infant and trust sinful, messed up, lame humans to care for him. And we went to the Dallas Cowboys football game this weekend, and we were three rows from the top. And it's like, I mean, the incline's crazy. I was terrified. I literally told Mariah, my wife, I was like, I'm not holding Eden. I will drop her. I literally said, I was terrified. My hands are all clammy and sweating. And I was like this. I'm going down the steps like this, like walking down. And my wife held our baby well. And I'm like, hold on. Jesus trusted people. Why? Because of his great love for them. Because he desired to see them in a rich relationship with him. 
because he wanted them to experience what access with God it was like. That's why. That's the hope and the love that he has for us. That's the hope and love that we could be absolutely certain of. That we could trust in Jesus that much. Our hope is in a God who we can have great confidence in. It's not in someone who's going to let us down time and time again. It's not in someone who might start off well and then they're going to trickle off after a couple of years. It's not in someone who's going to just please us for a little bit to where we have to beg them to stick around just a little bit longer. It's not in someone who just gives us empty promises. It's not in someone who's going to walk away when we feel like we're just that much closer to them. It's in a God who continues to say, I'm here for you you. I've showed up time and time again, and I will continue to always. It's in a God who poured out his blood for us. It's in a God who gave us everlasting life. That's where our hope is. Somewhere where we can be absolutely certain, confident, we can put every dollar on that bet. That Jesus is coming back again. And that he came for us once before. And he's going to make things all new. All over again. And we'll have a rich relationship for all of eternity with him. Paul goes on to kind of talk about how we can really see that he's poured out his love for us. And it's not just that he came for us. But that he gave us his spirit. That he filled us with himself. It's kind of hard to understand and uh, kind of complex to really think about and, and see. But as you read the scriptures and you go through John 15, 16, 17, it talks about like the Spirit and what the Spirit does for us. And you start to understand that the Spirit's job is primarily to really point us back to Jesus, to help us see who He is, to remind us of the great love that God has for us, to point us back to His everlasting, rich relationship that we have because He continued to give Himself for us. And so as we understand what the Spirit does, we start to see, man, it's the Spirit's work really that is helping us in seasons of affliction to produce endurance. It's the Spirit who moves that endurance to then produce character and the character to then move us to great certain hope in who God is. It's the Spirit that reminds us of the access to God that we have. It's the Spirit who continues to show us time and time again that we have a peaceful relationship with Jesus because of what He's done. We've been made right with God because of His good gifts. And so in our seasons of suffering, trials, despair, depression, anything, we could be reminded of the hope that we have in Jesus. We can be reminded that in the moments where it feels like all is lost, he is still there. So I want to invite you to something this week or this season. As we kind of look at the decorations and start thinking, man, there's poinsettias, there's some fake snow on there, there's going to be Christmas lights all over the place, you're going to have family time, you're going to eat lots of food. I want to invite you to remember that this season is not about Christmas decorations. Season's not about fun lights that we get to put up. It's not about a tree. It's not about family gatherings. It's not about food. It's not about all the cookies you're going to eat. But it's about the God who you can have great confidence in. That's what it's about. So I want to invite you this Advent season to put your hope in Jesus. I don't know what you might have going on. 
Maybe your marriage is rough as could be. And it feels like there's no hope to bring it back together. Maybe your house is in complete chaos and you have no idea what you're doing with your children. Maybe you're at a family gathering and you're irritated because the family member who you hate won't stop talking to you about the thing that just irks you about them. Maybe you're frustrated because you got cousins who are coughing all over your baby and you're just like, get away. That happened to me this week. I want you to stop and think for a moment. What is your hope in? My invitation is to put it in Jesus. If you've never trusted in Christ and you've been looking to people, places, things, whatever in this world, you've been trying to put your hope in all of these things, it will never satisfy you. It it will never bring you the perfect peace that you desire. It will always disappoint you. Everything that you put your hope in will always disappoint you outside of Jesus himself. So would you put your hope in Christ this season? Let's pray.